Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Anne-Marie and Rory from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about what will happen if Elon Musk actually buys Twitter. Why Netflix thinks it will lose 2 million subscribers this quarter, and the hottest new social media app on the market, Be Real. So, Rory and Marie, welcome back to this week's Stock Club podcast. Before we kick off, I just want to remind listeners at home that we now have an extended version of Stock Club that you can listen to in the My Wall Street app exclusively. This is completely free to listen to. All you need to do is download the My Wall Street app and set up your free account. You can easily find all the past episodes of Stock Club there and get notified as soon as new episodes are posted. What will feature in this extended episode this week is an extended elevator pitch where we'll discuss one of the pitches that either Rory or Anne-Marie pitched to me and we'll go through it and figure out if it's a good investment or not. So make sure to jump on over to the My Wall Street app if you want to listen to that extended pitch. But guys, another week, another story involving Elon Musk and Twitter. I don't think we can really escape this. Anyone listen to that listened to last week's podcast will know that just before we went to publish it, news emerged that Elon Musk had submitted an offer to buy Twitter for about $54 a share, which would have valued the company, or which does value the company at around $43 billion. This revelation had come after Musk initially revealed a 9.2% stake in the company which made him the largest individual shareholder by a long shot and then he said he was joining the board and then he said he wasn't joining the board there was this big to and fro Rory we talked about this up until the point where Musk offered to buy the company we spoke extensively about it last week but you were on your holidays, you know, you were there relaxing and you, you probably got a, a push notification off my Wall Street itself saying that Musk had put in an offer for Twitter. What did you make of this? Were you surprised to see that he'd, he'd put out this offer? I mean, considering Musk is a person who has built an entire business persona and see by the looks of a personal persona on being shocking, I suppose it's one of those things where it's like you're initially shocked and then you realize why was I shocked at all? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) You know, it's his whole raison d'etre is to be as shocking and uh, as he possibly can. So uh, yeah, you're kind of always, I suppose, trying to kind of play 4D chess with yourself when you try and analyze what Elon's doing because you you have to take what you originally think and then you have to go, well, no, hold on. That's not what he would want me to think. So therefore I have to, it's kind of a game of poker where you're, is he bluffing or is he, do he he think I think he's bluffing or is or is does he is he doing it three times <laughs> so so yeah no was i shocked it's hard to it's hard to really judge emotions at the moment uh, i mean he's always been aggressive as a kind of deal maker as well you know if you, we look back on you know the silver city acquisition his dealings with the sec um his response to any criticism whatsoever uh he always behaves aggressively back um so you know you could say i was shocked by how quickly he made the offer given that the the story was kind of still kind of developing but then again it's elon well you know he could be doing anything is it surprising that a rich megalomaniac wants to own the kind of modern equivalent of a mass media newspaper 
no, it's not surprising <laughs> at all. It's, it's, not, it's no more shocking than Bezos wanting to own the Washington Post or Rupert Murdoch wanting to own Fox News or Mark Zuckerberg wanting to own the entire metaverse, whatever that is. Or yeah. Logan Roy wanting to own ATN. You know, all, <laughs> it's, it's just part of the checklist, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you said it's no surprise that Elon Musk wants to own something like Twitter. But I suppose the question I have is how genuine do you think this offer actually is? You know, he's well known for trolling. And as we record right now, Twitter shares are hovering around $47 a share, which to me might suggest that the market isn't as convinced that this deal is going to happen as as we might think. Well, I mean, he thinks if the board accepts his offer, I think he's going to have to go through with it. This is, I mean, there's still an awful lot of questions surrounding this this offer. It was, I think the exact amount he offered was $54.20, which yeah. is because, you know, four twenty is... Um, <laughs> is some sort of magical number to him. And guess what today is? The day we're recording is, <laughs> is 420. And he's been um, leading, le- leaving what some people have called cryptic tweets up about his, what he's going to do. They're not that cryptic at all. Like, you know, it's like tender is the night. <laughs> Love me tender. Uh, so he's definitely hinting that he is going to make some move in the next um, couple of days. We don't know you know how he's going to finance this to, to, to yeah. begin with um obviously he's a very wealthy man but he doesn't have 46 billion dollars in cash lying around the vast majority of his wealth is tied up in tesla shares i think someone figured he'd have to sell a fifth of those in order to fund um this acquisition i mean that would that could have really devastating consequences for tesla uh, for yeah tesla I, was, shareholders, I was gonna say would you be worried if you were a tesla shareholder now <sighs> seeing this well, I mean, considering a huge, what I, I, I believe a huge percentage of Tesla's current valuation is tied up in Musk's participation in the business. Uh, I don't yeah. think any single single corporate leader would have a bigger impact um, on a business if they were to sell that fast, that amount of shares. There's also the possibility that, you know, he goes in with someone else and his criticisms of the board could be met with, you know, some friendly offers from the likes of Silver Lake or... Uh, Elliot management, or I mean, Elliot management are probably pretty pissed off at the way that uh, the way the kind of power he's exerted, given that it took them years to try and get anything out of the board. But um, I think Apollo management as well as well have said that they could potentially fund uh, something along these lines. I think you know, in 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 general, he does he is serious about this. He, okay. the, you know, and and I don't. Well then, yeah. <laughs> Don't hold me to that. Um, but I think I think he's he is serious about the concept of Twitter, and he has ideas for it. And I think he probably got to a point where he thought he was going to buy a large percentage of the shares and exert some influence, but has probably realised since then that really he wants to kind of own the whole thing, and 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 that could mean that you know, the changes that maybe he thinks are necessary for it can't be made uh, when the when the company is a public company. And I kind of probably agree with him on that. There's things that they probably should have done a long time ago that they haven't been able to do because they're kind of constantly in the public spotlight. I think, you know, his criticisms of the board are, can be, are, you know, fair at times. And I know Jack Dorsey has come, come out and kind of hinted that he would support that too. So I do think there is a seriousness about this and, and it could be as kind of petty as the fact that it's uh, it's his platform. He's built a, a business and a, and, a, and a fortune using this platform as a kind of public mouthpiece, a mouthpiece and he doesn't want it to go down a particular route. 
Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the board there and the board, you know, they, they were happy to have Elon on, it seemed, about a week ago onto the board. But now it seems that there's been a lot of talk about them um, enacting this so-called poison pill to stop them taking over more control of the company. Can you quickly explain what this idea of a poison pill is in terms of Elon and, and taking over Twitter? Yeah, I mean, I can't, exact, I can't explain exactly what a poison pill is because it's a kind of kind of legal process that could take many forms. But essentially, there's there's loads of different ways that someone could take over a public business. Um, in a typical scenario, if you control 51% of the voting power, you control the company. So you just, you've got 51% of the voting power, you just pack the board of directors with your buddies. They'll vote for whatever you want, you tell them to vote for. And it's the business is yours, essentially. And you can do all sorts of nefarious things when you when you have that kind of power in a business, including kind of screwing over a lot of other shareholders by you know <laughs> merging with a with with a business that you own for much less than the business is worth etc so now that's not always the case there's, there's legal provisions that be written into shareholder agreements but in the most simple cases the kind of that's the way it goes and so the vast majority of the time someone who's trying to take over business will try and kind of get the board of directors on their side so um they'll approach them they'll suggest a takeover there'll be a bit of negotiation about the price you know the board will try and find one that they think is fair to everyone and then the board will accept it and at that point they'll submit that offer to the shareholders for their approval uh, however in the past there were a lot more kind of hostile types of takeovers kind of thinking back especially kind of like to the to the 80s we had all these kind of corporate raiders that were using a lot of tactics that could essentially force a takeover which was not equitable to all shareholders and at times could hold shareholders essentially at random um, trying to pit them against each other trying to pit them against the board uh, and so this concept of a poison pill which is an illegal term it's called a shareholders rights plan is a tactic that boards use well they actually never use them really but they can they, all they need to do is threaten to use them and that prevents something like this happening and the basic way it would work is the board decides well we don't want this person owning too much of our company so let's say they reach a certain threshold of shares you know if they own if, as soon as they reach 20 percent we are going to give every shareholder except that person a free share for every share they own um, okay so it's essentially like a stock split, except one person in particular doesn't get to participate. Uh, <laughs> in this case, that would be Elon Musk. So they could decide, you know, when Elon owns 14.2% of the business, because, you know, that four, 420, 420. Has, to, has to feature into everything, um, they could decide that they're going to, uh, or let's say he owns 20% of the business, they're going to like give every every other Twitter shareholder a free share and then suddenly he owns 10% of the business. So yeah. uh, he's practically lost half his money. And so that's that's kind of, I mean, it's never, I, don't, I, I think I'm correct in saying it's never been used because just the threat of it itself is enough to deter this stuff. But if someone could check me on that. I, I don't imagine things like that deterring Elon Musk either for some reason. So yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm very conscious we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. It's very likely by the time this goes out on Friday, something else mad will happen. So I want both of you guys to give me a prediction. What do you think? How do you think this saga is going to end? What do you see the end game here? Anne-Marie, what's your end game with, with this Twitter, Elon Musk, 420, dog's mm. dinner of a, a story? I think Elon turns around and he buys Pinterest. I think that's it. He just goes, he says, you know what? Free speech is aesthetic photos. And he will buy <laughs> Pinterest and that will be the end of it. And all of his tweets from then on will just be captions under photos of like Teslas and quotes. meme dogs. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Okay, I like that. Rory, what about you? I mean, I think the the reasonable thing that would happen is that um, Elon kind of 
you know, uh, influences some power in his current position because he does have a lot of power. Remember, like he did say that that offer was his final offer and he was going to have to reconsider his stake in the company. I mean, if he reconsiders his stake in the company, by which I mean, I, I think he means selling all his shares, that would be bad for shareholders. So he's kind of holding on a gun uh, at shareholders' heads right now. Um, I think, you know, the reasonable thing to happen with that, he would kind of get a little bit of what he wants, um, maybe a kind of shake above the board, maybe kind of some commitments in terms of um, this free speech uh, route that he's going down, which is just so boring. I thought he thought he would be a bit more, um, a bit more inventive in his, in his bullshit reasons to buy a business, and there'll be some sort of you know equitable agreement. But uh, who knows? This could be all over by the time this goes out. Anyway, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's move on then. And on this podcast, we've been speaking quite a bit about Netflix recently. But I think after the company's earnings report last night, which is Tuesday evening this week. I think it's it's worth going back to chat about the company again. So Netflix's share price absolutely cratered on Tuesday night after reporting a loss of 200,000 subscribers in the most recent quarter, which is the first time the company has actually lost subscribers in more than a decade. Even worse than this, the company is projecting a loss of 2 million subscribers in the current quarter, which is quarter two of the fiscal year. Netflix blamed a couple of things on this miss, including a high host household penetration of the service, the sharing of account passport words, which is something we talked about uh, recently, uh, and the pull forward experience during COVID, which I think is just an excuse a lot of uh, a lot of companies pull out. Anne-Marie, you've been doing a lot of research on Netflix and the kind of wider streaming industry recently. What do you make of this miss for Netflix? Was it a shock or was it something we should have kind of expected? In terms of kind of subscribers, I think it was a shock. We knew subscriber numbers were going to slow down and we we're coming off the pandemic. Netflix actually predicted that last quarter when they set Q1 guidance to only 2 million subscribers. And, and even that like was a headline grabber and punished the stock as it would actually make it Netflix's slowest quarter since like 2011 or something like that. So we kind of knew it was coming. We just didn't know how bad it was going to be. Mm. Um, and I guess it's also worth mentioning that they lost 200,000 subscribers, but that does include a loss of 700,000 subscribers in Russia, which yeah. the company made the decision to churn those users and it departed the country altogether. So if we remove Russia, I guess they actually would have had a net ad of 500,000 subscribers, but uh, I don't really think that's a consolation at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really kind of where we saw the declines is where you'd expect if if the argument is, oh, this is due to inflation, this is a uh, due to people, you know, struggling to to make ends meet. So we saw a decline in users in the United States and Canada and in Europe and the Middle East. However, we also actually saw a minor decline in Latin America, which I was a bit bummed out about. I think I and a lot of analysts would consider Latin America to be somewhat of a frontier for streaming right now as, as internet penetration increases in that region. It's kind of a great battleground for people to try and get in and, and make your streaming service the main one for people there. And so to see an incremental loss there was a bit of a bummer, but I, I assume that that's going to be an issue will have going forward because of you know lower household incomes and economic instability and, and the prevalence of ad-supported streaming in that region. But I mean, it wasn't all doom and gloom in terms of uh, subscribers. We did see in the Asia-Pacific region, they added a little under a million subscribers, which is pretty good. I would argue that is somewhat evidence that Netflix's localization strategy is still working. And that growth was in line with where they were growing in the Asia-Pacific region last year. So they are adding subscribers. They're just obviously not adding them in, in the way which we would like. And I guess it's worth mentioning if we zoom out from from subscriber numbers and and I would do this solely because I saw like a tweet from a Netflix investor and, and he was like if Netflix never released subscriber figures and you just looked at it from a dollar and cents perspective it actually wasn't a terrible quarter in terms of revenue operating margin and EPS they all looked pretty solid just 
pretty good like single digit growth that you'd expect to see from a company entering maturity. EPS in particular was pretty strong. It was three dollars and fifty three cents, which was against an estimate of two dollars and eighty nine cents. So that was pretty good. And also, uh, Netflix conducted some surveying that's worth mentioning that showed that they're actually not losing watch time to their competition. So like they're not being diminished by Disney Plus or Amazon Prime or anything like that. People are just watching more um, hours of television on streaming altogether. So Netflix still controls 6.4% of total TV time, and that's actually up a bit from 2021. But obviously watch time doesn't really translate into revenue. It just kind of proves that people like your product. So I guess it's now the pressure's on Netflix to find a way to add new customers or better monetize the ones that they have. Yeah, what I thought was really interesting about this report was the mention again of this planned crackdown and password sharing. So in the shareholder letter, management estimated that in addition to the 222 million paying households Netflix has, there's Netflix passwords are being shared with over 100 million additional households. So, you know, almost a third of people using the platform aren't, aren't paying for it, potentially. Netflix have been talking about this crackdown and password sharing more and more over the last few months, and it's becoming pretty clear why, I suppose. How are they going to realistically crack down on this? Is there any way for the company to actually, you know, stop people sharing passwords? I mean, considering Netflix has talked about it so much, I would assume that they have an ability to figure out when an account is being used by more than one household. Like maybe you'll have to register the devices you're going to use it on. And once it surpasses a certain number, you may not be allowed anymore. Or like simple geography is probably enough. Like I use my parents' Netflix account and I live in Ireland and they live in Colorado. So surely Netflix <laughs> knows that like we're not a single household anymore. But I, I think really the real... hope Netflix doesn't go the, the Google or the Gmail route. You know, when you try to sign into your Gmail from another device, yeah. it's something like Google kicks Sets out. Your an door. alarm yeah yeah and they send you like a very detailed map on your phone and they're like did you just log in from this exact gps coordinate and you're like uh, yes that, that potentially yeah i think the real question though we kind of have to answer is how do you monetize these users in such a way that they don't churn and that's yeah. like a very delicate equation like netflix offers you the content library they offer you the originals and it probably has the best streaming infrastructure we've talked about this in the past like i saw a tiktok recently of this girl who found the disney plus tv app so cumbersome to operate that she would just search for what she wanted to watch on her phone and then cast it to her tv because she just found it too annoying to search for anything on that app and i think netflix has has done a much better job with these type of small detail things that just really enhance the viewer experience but the, the question is like how much pricing power is there in this model and and i don't know i would like to believe that netflix has this first mover advantage and has enough of a defined streaming brand to be the subscription that you never cancel you know it's the equivalent of basic cable and all other streaming platforms are just kind of an add-on and i think when squid game came out we almost saw that that idea of this brand was emerging that was powerful and created great content and when you saw it was a netflix original you just assumed it would be good and you would watch it you know we talk about disney sometimes and so much of the thesis for investing in disney is the strength of the brand when you see something that's made by disney you know it's, it'll be great for your kids it'll be family friendly it'll be good and i think netflix now has built that kind of brand but i don't really know how much that brand is worth and i do think it's it is kind of the baseline for streaming and we do have some evidence of that we recently saw a report from kantar world panel which publishes an annual entertainment on demand report for the uk and it found that cancellation rates just across the board for for streaming services 
declined, but the one that was least impacted was Netflix and Amazon Prime, and they labeled them kind of the last-to-go services, which, which is a testament to the diversity of content and how people view these. But I guess kind of beyond simple monetization of freeloaders, I would expect to see Netflix maybe building out some more product offerings. I'm interested to see where gaming will go as well as yeah. maybe some more interactive content and maybe even some in-person showings with the the release of G- Gene Yus, Y-U-H-S, which is that Kanye West <laughs> documentary that came out a while ago. Netflix permitted a one-week theatrical release, which was the first time they'd done so for a movie that wasn't for up for Oscar consideration. So if Netflix is going to build out these spectacle films that we've become accustomed to because of Marvel, which they may well do, they have a huge contract with Christopher Nolan, uh, I, those projects should be in theaters. And that you know could be a huge additional revenue stream for them if they allow it to be in a theater exclusive for four weeks or something like that. So um, yeah, we're really in this period that's going to test Netflix's innovative spirit and their management because I I think they have a brand that people love and they've always said that they won't add advertising so now is kind of the time to have some creative thinking yeah absolutely for for a deeper discussion that gaming Netflix thing I'd I'd recommend going back listen to that podcast we had with Aaron Bush two or three weeks ago really really interesting perspectives on on where Netflix would go with that gaming side of their 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 uh, business but after Netflix's report on Tuesday, shares and other streaming services fell as well. So from what you're saying there, it, it, it doesn't seem fair to say, or it seems fair to say, excuse me, that this is kind of an industry headwind rather than a Netflix-specific headwind we're, we're seeing. Yeah, yeah, the story's definitely bigger than Netflix. It just impacts them the most because they're kind of the dedicated streamer, whereas the other big players tend to be diversified across some of the verticals. It also doesn't help that Netflix reports first out the gate, so they tend to somewhat set the mood for the coming quarter. I think we're definitely going to be in the next kind of six months to a year that's really going to test the new coming streamers. That same survey that I referenced earlier that was done in the UK uh, found that churn rates for Disney Plus in in the first quarter for 2022 more than and tripled and reached 12%, wow. which that's pretty bad. And I base it on a pure assumption here. I would blame this on the lack of new releases for adults that Disney Plus has. We've seen them kind of pivot their streaming marketing strategy around this recently. I have, they have all these billboards up in Dublin, and I saw them even, I was in Croatia recently, they had billboards there, and they've labeled themselves the home of the expected and the unexpected, which is them trying to maybe move themselves away from, oh, we just do Marvel or we just do Pixar. And so it'll be interesting to see how that works in terms of trying to add more adult users, particularly with the upcoming integration of 20th Century Fox. So yeah, I think it's going to be a difficult year for streamers. I think we should maybe keep our eyes on them. And and it might be, you know, the kind of time to readjust our attention to ad supported streaming, which may mm. benefit in the next kind of 12 months. So yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be rough, but I'm interested to see kind of what the players do about it. I know Disney has announced that they'll be adding ad supported streaming. So um, it'll be interesting to see if Netflix will continue to say, no, we're not adding ads. And, and this is how we're going to monetize in the future. What do you think, Rory? Do you th- expect to see ads on Netflix anytime soon? I've always been kind of hopeful that they wouldn't go down that route. And because one of the reasons why is because I it was almost this kind of um, philosophical battle between <laughs> kind of ad supported versus the the idea that people actually, you know, are intelligent beings who don't want to be advertised at all the time. We'd rather pay for good content. And I think Netflix was kind of at the forefront. I suppose HBO was really as well. But uh, but Netflix, in terms of kind of like an internet company, was very much at the forefront of that of that push. And so it feels like we're kind of losing the battle somewhat slightly. Mm. Um, on the flip side, I do think, you know, if 
they're going down the kind of, they're going to cut off a lot of these password sharers, these freeloaders, freeloaders, as them. freeloaders. <laughs> um, then, you know, I suppose giving them a kind of, I suppose more of a kind of soft landing with a five, $6 ad supported version is probably better than trying to pull them over to the, what is it in the, in the US, 15, $16. dollars mm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I would just like to confirm as well that two out of three of us here pay for our Netflix account. <laughs> In my defense, I pay for Amazon Prime and they get to use my Amazon Prime and I use their Netflix. Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Thieves, yeah. thieves everywhere. <laughs> Den of thieves. <laughs> Um, so let's move on and don't forget that if you listen to this podcast in the My Wall Street app you get some extra member only content at the end for the past few weeks I've been picking my favourite elevator pitch and the three of us then go on to discuss the company in more depth and figure out if it's a good investment or not or not it's completely free to listen to episodes of Stocked Up in the My Wall Street app all you have to do is create a My Wall Street account and if that wasn't enough we also have a brand new podcast series which went live last weekend called FML Fund My Life this is a podcast that makes investing seem more approachable easy and something you can actually enjoy creating a community for novice investors to ask questions and feel supported in their investing journey. Anne-Marie, what did you and Nicole chat about in the first episode last weekend? So we talked about the first stock that we ever bought after we joined My Wall Street and kind of the lessons that we learned and, and, the, mis- and the mistakes that we made. And then um, that kind of set us up for episode two to talk about if we were to start our investing journey all over again, what stocks would we pick wow. and why? I know. Unfortunately, actually, Nicole's first stock was Netflix. So <laughs> tough one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut that out so you, if you want to listen into FML you can find a link in the notes for today's show or simply just search for it on your favourite podcasting platform that's coming out every two weeks on Maria Believe is that right? yep that's correct cool has anyone check. checked in on Emmett actually today? <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't heard from him all day yeah he did did you see he, he sent a, a message to us on Slack that just said FML and then nothing else he was well, talking about the podcast surely yeah, he was talking about your podcast let's <laughs> um, so just check in on him I think he is a prominent stake in that business <laughs> Emmett, if you're listening, let us know you're okay. Um, so let's move on. Instead of the mailbag this week, let's look at some of the more recent insights we've written for the My Wall Street app and chat about them in a little more detail. Anne-Marie, I want to come to a piece you wrote this Wednesday about the changing face of social media landscape. And there's one new app in particular you're writing about that's really changing the way people think about social media. I believe this app is called Be Real. It is, yeah. It's called Be Real. It's French. I'm sure, you know, every great company comes from France. So is it um, actually pronounced Be Real or is it like Be Real? Be Real. <laughs> I don't know. I try, I went on their website and like there's such a new company that a portion of their website is just hosted on Notion. And I was like, <laughs> well, oh, we're still in the development phase. <laughs> yeah, but I kind of wrote this article at the beginning of the year where I talked about upcoming social media trends. And I noticed that particularly young people seem to be regressing back towards kind of privacy and authenticity and kind of only wanting to be in group chats. They didn't seem to want to be exposed to a thousand people when they put up a photo. And in my view, this meant that Instagram was a bit at risk, particularly because when Gen Z kids were using Instagram, it was in a way that was very contrary to the monetization strategy that Instagram is moving towards in which they prioritize video content over photos. But Mm. all these Gen Z kids, they were still posting big clumps of like kind of unflattering, authentic, unfiltered photos, and they would call, would call them photo dumps. And I was going, if Instagram 
can't recognize the fact that Gen Z is using this still as a photo sharing service, they're going to get disrupted. Someone else is going to come along and, and, and take this market away from them. So I've been on the hunt for an upcoming social media that was photo based. And I kind of found them actually um, via TikTok because I saw all these teenagers, they would be like sitting in front of the Eiffel Tower and they'd make this TikTok where they'd go, if my Be Real doesn't come on right now, I'm going to be fuming. I'm going to be so mad if Be Real doesn't notify me right now. And I was like, what the hell is Be Real? So I went, I Googled it and I found out it's this social media app that was founded in 2020 by this guy named Alexis Barat. And he founded it because he hated social media and he was like, it's addictive. You waste time there and it's really hard to actually interact with your friends. So he was, he said he was going to make a new social media and he made this, this, uh, social media called be real. And all it does is you add your friends on it. And then once a day at a random time, be real sends you a push notification and it's the same for all the users who use it. And it gives you two minutes to take and post a photo using both the front and back camera. And basically, the the app is hoping to catch you off guard. It's hoping yeah. that you are forced to document just like your regular everyday life, like riding the bus or, you know, going to work or just walking around or whatever. And then after you post and only after you post, you're allowed to view the posts of your friends and the people who opt to share publicly via the discovery feed. And so it kind of gets everyone involved in this social media in a way that like everybody looks terrible together. So <laughs> no one can be glorified. And it kind of, truthfully, it seems like they don't have any of the kind of anonymous harassment that you would get on Facebook or Instagram because everyone has to post photos. So it's like, well, they, I can't make fun of them because they can also see me. Yeah. Um, and it's this really interesting concept. And I read a bunch of interviews of people who use it and it's spreading like crazy on college campuses in the US. They have 2 million uh, daily active users right now. Their downloads are up like almost 400% this year. It's They're doing really, really well. But all their users were kind of like, I really like it. I just add like 40 or 50 of my friends and we just get to post silly photos every day and we just comment on each other's photos and check in with each other and see what they're doing. Yeah. And I thought it was this very interesting kind of more authentic private social media that is taking advantage of all these these trends that we saw upcoming. That being said, I have absolutely no idea how to monetize this and I don't know how it will be a business, but it was cool to see. When you say it's going to catch you off guard, I mean, that that could end up being a bit of a tricky spot. I mean, I hope Jeffrey Tubin's not on it. Well, you do. You can post late, so it gives you the two minute window. But if you post late, then your post gets like watermarked that you they posted late. So your friends so could be like, it's like a shame tag. Yeah, it's like, why did you wait forty five minutes to post? Did you go and find somewhere more beautiful to stand? So, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's a good point, though, Anne Marie. About you know how how are they going to monetize this? It doesn't seem like I know. You know, when you mention that it's taking off around college campuses straight away, you think of the likes of Facebook, likes mm-hmm. of Match. You know, a lot of really great tech and particularly social innovations have you know come from the hotbed of college campuses but you know what what's the end game here if, if this is the anti-social media surely not going to sell data they're surely not going to put advertising in so is is, is social media going to lose its its appeal to um to big advertisers or, or to to people looking for those big returns well it seems that like I have seen one company so far, which is Chipotle, and Chipotle tweeted yesterday, so Tuesday, that they were joining Be Real. And then Be Real tweeted them back and kind of gave a scrunched face emoji. That was all they responded with. So I think Be Real was kind of upset. I think they were like, no, you're a company. Don't join our social media. So I have followed Chipotle, and I will keep you updated on what their their Be Real presence looks like. <laughs> but yeah, I don't think it's like a space that will be friendly to companies. It's not an advertiser-friendly space. And quite frankly, the guy who founded Be Real shows no interest in trying to to like make it an advertiser space or make it something that people use consistently that you could make a bunch of money out of. Like their server was down a couple of days ago and they just tweeted, our server's down, 
Sorry, go spend more time with your friends. You're welcome. And that was it. And <laughs> like nothing. Yeah, they just they just they were like, "Oops, we don't is, care. Go outside." What, does he just want the world to burn? He doesn't want to make money. What is it? I know. <laughs> we, so those I, people don't exist in this world. Come on. I yeah. So I was like, maybe he'll charge people a dollar a month. She said, I don't know. Yeah. Like it's it's kind of like we're in this social experiment, and like the company is hiring like crazy, but they've only done one funding round. They've only raised they made thirty million dollars in their Series A funding round. That was a couple months ago. That's all they've done. So I don't really know where this company is going, but it's like a very interesting like social experiment to show. Hey, like people just want a space to like check in with their friends. They don't want to be harangued by advertisement every time they scroll. So. I'm very interested in it. I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes. That being said, I did also see a girl tweet, and she said, I used to live Wordle to Wordle, and now I live Be Real to Be Real. So, like, maybe the whole thing will be dead in four weeks. I don't know. I'll keep you up <laughs> Is Wordle dead? I'm still on Wordle. Yeah, but, like, this girl was, like, 19, so I think she was a bit know. quicker to the to the social transformation. They're afraid of commitment, these young people. That's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> How long is your Wordle streak now, Rory? Uh, I think I'm on 79 pretty good okay yeah my average more than my, my top one is in three guesses which i'm very proud of okay well, not too bad so we can expect rory to be on be real in about four years time yeah um, <laughs> <laughs> cool thanks for that um so if you want to read that full insight uh, with a few more details about the kind of wider social media landscape you can check that out in my wall street right now let's move on to the elevator pitch my favorite part of the show so i just ask you guys to pitch me a company that's on your watch list at the moment 30 to 60 second pitches, please. And I'm going to pick my favorite that we'll go into more detail on. Anne-Marie, I'll let you go first. What company are you pitching me today? I am pitching Kurasushi USA, which is actually a company that originated in Japan, as you would expect. And it was a restaurant for more than 35 years. And it grew to have more than 480 locations in Japan. And then in 2008, they established a subsidiary in California. And it's now this smallish restaurant chain in the US, but they're in this period of hyper growth. And that's why I'm interested in them. In Q1 of 2022, they had $29.8 million in revenue, which was up from $9.4 million in revenue just one year prior. Obviously, the pandemic impacted them. But that is growth of 154%. And they have opened five restaurants this year. They want to open five more. Um, Yeah, I'm just very impressed with them. And the cool thing is they're that restaurant that serves the sushi on a conveyor belt. It goes around. So idea... Do they are they less worried about labor concerns because they only need to have kitchen staff and not waiters? Who knows? We, Dublin used to be absolutely like full of those revolver sushi places. I haven't seen one in years. I think there's still one in Dundrum Town Centre. No, there's not. I was there it's yesterday. It's not one there. Yeah, I haven't. You, there, were the, there used to be one on every corner. Now they're all gone. They're back. Were you in Dundrum specifically for the conveyor belt sushi? Because you no. said that like you went looking for it. I was there. I was there to pick up my broken AirPods. Um, oh. So that's so now you you will be able to hear me talk. When Thank I'm God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good pitch. Thanks for that, Marie. Rory, what company are you pitch me? Well, don't call it a comeback, but I am looking at. <laughs> oh no. The very famous WeWork, um, which uh, some people might remember from a couple of years ago. They had a little bit of trouble with the IPO that didn't quite go to plan. They are currently under a new management team. They have survived uh, the pandemic and they are now public via a SPAC. Um, So yeah, they they SPAC'd just about six, seven months ago. So I've kind of been taking a look at them, seeing whether there's any, any life in the old girl. 
Uh, and yeah, it's like, you know, WeWork was one of those weird things where it was actually not a very bad business. It was, it was kind of right on the cusp of kind of changing trends and they had, you know, the, they expanded pretty rapidly. Um, but obviously there was an awful lot of problems with the CEO and the, and the corporate culture. And that's, I mean, they've basically tried to clear that out now and the business is back to kind of growing revenue. They've got some, you know, basic idea of when they might be profitable, which who knows, we'll see what happens. But yeah, that's, that's what I've been kind of looking into. Okay, well, as much as I like sushi, I cannot resist <laughs> digging more into WeWork. Sorry about that, Anne-Marie. So let's go with WeWork. Excellent. So if you're not listening to Stock Club in the My Wall Street app, this is where we're going to leave you today. If you want to find out more about WeWork and what we think of it as a potential investment, however, jump on over to My Wall Street app now and you can listen to the rest of our conversation in full for free. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like answered or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, as always, that's at MyWallStreetHQ, on TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet, or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and please leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll talk to you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.